So, Mark. Yes? One of the first times the leads in this week's movie hang out, they go to a diner, and in order to indicate that they are not on a date, Bradley Cooper sits down in the diner and orders a bowl of Raisin Bran. A weird move. When he ordered the Raisin Bran, I was taken aback. <laughs> right, it's a, it's a baffling thing to do. It really is, and it. I don't think it conveyed that they weren't on a date, it just conveyed confusion. Which the movie engages with. Like, Jennifer yes. Lawrence is like, what have you done? <laughs> but it's even more weird that the Raisin Bran comes out still in a little cardboard box and not pre-poured into the bowl. I think that's That's because normal. it's for children. Is that normal? I've definitely seen that before. I guess I've just never ordered cereal at a diner before. No, because why would you? You've always been on a date when you went to diners. I have not. Yeah, I was going to ask, have you been on a date to a diner? I have been on a date to the diner in Adams Morgan, which is like sort of dinery, it's, but not But like that's not a diner. Stereotypical <laughs> diner. That's enough of a restaurant that it's not weird. Yeah. Yeah. I was just thinking because like, I think also going to a diner alone was a sign that it wasn't a date. Yeah, for sure. But anyway, Mark, my point was. Have you ever had an experience where you needed to signal to someone, oh, this isn't a date, and you, like, did something to do that? So, I have not personally done this, but there was one time where it was done against me oh, in no! a very weird way, which was, like, right after I came out, there was this guy that was constantly flirting with me, like deep eye contact, telling me how handsome I was, wanting to talk all the time. So I was like, all right, we'll go out. And then about halfway through, he mentions, like, an ex-girlfriend and someone, another woman he'd asked out. And I was just like, this is the weirdest mixed signals I've ever gotten. Yeah, that's confusing. complimenting me on my appearance more than once and, like, wanting all these deep conversations, I was like, yeah, I guess we could go out on a date. So I asked him out. And then he was just basically in the middle of the date, like, I'm straight. And I was like, well, I still don't really believe you, but I am now aware that this will go nowhere. Yeah, that's weird. Yeah, that is weird. It was a bizarre experience. And it was, like, a month after I'd come out too, so I was also new to the whole world of dating men. Well, I'm glad you seem to have turned out okay. Yeah, I also, that was not the only straight man that other people have also said was flirting with me in China. It was a weird experience. So I have kind of been in the other position where I I basically did the like mentioning a significant other. When I was in grad school, I was in Florida and some other people in my program who were in Alabama through a party in Alabama. And one of my friends and I drove up for it. And so we're just like hanging out there for the weekend, staying with some of our friends. They throw a party and like some other people in our grad program are there and also just like local Alabama teachers that are friends with our friends who are hosting. And just like in the course of the party, I'm just chatting with this girl, like whatever, we're having a nice time. At some point, like I break off, I am talking to other people. When I wind up circling back to this girl, she gives me this kind of like joke, accusatory, like you left me kind of thing and i'm like oh yeah i was just doing something <laughs> and then at the end of the night she like insisted on exchanging phone numbers and was texting me the next day and finally like some long time had gone by after she had sent me a text and i just said like oh yeah sorry i was talking to my girlfriend never heard from her again oh, <laughs> oh. gosh it's so uncomfortable for everyone involved it is i was also like you live in alabama like i'm not going to date you that's also true yeah i mean that's a very good point How long of a drive was it? Like six hours, maybe? Yeah, that is way too long. Yeah. 
So that's why I was also confused. I was like, what do you think is going to happen here? Yeah. I'm very charming. I, I get the appeal, but come on. Yeah. Had you already gone back to Florida while she was still trying to text you, too? I was, like, on the road back. Weird. It was very strange. Mora, do you have any date shutdown tactics that when you When I enjoy? saw this in the movie, I was like, Mora must have had to do this at some point. Well, I'm actually, I had one in mind, but now that we're talking, I am now thinking of a different situation. But, so I, I just feel like to share, I just feel but... like people, like, try to be on dates with you a lot. Yeah. Oh, I have, I just have, like, weird people, like, approach me randomly. Ah, wow. Now I really can't decide which one to go for. Tell both. Okay. Well, so the first one, one of my friends one time was over at my apartment and we were watching a movie. But I guess actually important backstory (laughs) is that he had told one of my best friends that he was thinking about asking me out. And she said, don't do it. I don't think she's interested. And he decided that he was going to go for it anyway. And so we were, like, watching a movie at my apartment, and he, like, offered to kiss me in a very awkward way. Like, it was, you know, whatever. And Do you remember, like, what he said? Uh, not specifically. I remember in that moment, I was like, I need to remember every word of what is about <laughs> to go down, and I don't think I remember it anymore. But I just remember he was just kind of like, oh, like, you know, if you wanted to, like, I, I could kiss you or something like that. And I just kind of paused for a moment, and I was like, uh, I think I'm okay, but thanks, thank you, or thanks for the offer, or something weird like that. And then I gave him a hug, and he walked out of my apartment. Oh, my <laughs> oh God. It was very awkward. We are still friends, but nothing more, so that is good. At least it was successful. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I was going to say, he... My friend said he, like, kept talking to her about it, but I can't remember if there was, like, he kept talking to her about it after that incident or if it was multiple times before that. But it took a while to convince him that I, like, truly was not interested and not just not interested in that one moment. Yikes. Yeah. What was the other time? Well, um, you was talking about texting that girl reminded me that there was this guy who I went on a couple dates with, like, four years ago. And it just kind of like, after a while, I wasn't feeling it, just kind of fizzled out, whatever. But this was like nothing serious at all. It was just a handful of dates. And like I said, several years ago, randomly out of the blue, he texted me this past summer. (laughs) So like three years later. (laughs) Yes. He texted me over the summer and was just like, hi. So we were just asking like what was new with each other. And I was kind of like, what's, you know, what's going on here? Is he just like wanting to catch up like what's the objective of this conversation and he mentioned that he lives in texas now so i was like oh great he's not like trying to meet up or anything we're just truly catching up you know but then he kind of like like stopped responding but then texted me again like back in the fall like months later and stuff and he was talking about on on our first date we had gone to this ice cream place and he was like oh, I really want to go back to that ice cream place we went to. And I was just like, well, you know, like I'm sure there's plenty of ice cream places in Texas you can go to. And he was like, yeah, but they won't be the same without you. Uh-huh. And <laughs> What is it with these interstate romances? But that's the thing. I was like, what are you expecting to come out of this? Because you live in Texas and I live in D.C. Like, what's your end game here? Why do you keep texting me? And 
I was just like, well, just to be clear, I'm still three years later, just still just interested in us as friends. Nothing more. And he said, absolutely. And I haven't heard from him since. Wow. I was about to say, I feel like the implication is just as friends, but mostly nothing. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, because back before, like previously, the last time I actually like saw him, he said something about going out again. And I said, like, oh, I'm more just interested in being friends. So I was just really confused with why he kept trying to keep this communication up. Like, no, actually, in the past four years when I have not seen or talked to you, my feelings towards you have not changed. Shockingly. (laughs) My thing is just like, at my last job, I was a coach and we competed against teams like in Maryland, in D.C., and Virginia. And one of the other coaches tried to get me to ask out a coach from a team in Virginia. And I was like, no, I won't cross a river to date somebody. Oh, my god! And I certainly am not going to cross multiple time zones. Yeah, I mean, that the river is dramatic, but multiple time zones is a very fair point. I love how when Will brought this up as an idea to discuss, you were like, oh, I don't think this has ever happened to me. <laughs> oh, yeah. And now I just keep thinking of more. Like the time someone tr- like tried to ask me out on a bus in Chicago. I remember like, that. Yeah. That kid was like 17. Yes, because he asked me how old I was and I wasn't going to tell him. So I just said I was in college. And then I asked him how old he was and he was like, 17, but I'm almost 18. And I was like, okay. (laughs) That kid was very earnest. He read poetry to you. Yeah, and he flat out asked me if I had a boyfriend. And I said, no. And then he said, well, are you looking for one? (laughs) And I said, no, because not on that bus in Chicago was I looking for a boyfriend. Right, because you had crossed rivers. Is this like a public bus that you were on? Yes. He, He said his dad was the driver. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. His dad was the driver. And so he would ride the bus sometimes just for people watching, probably to inspire his poetry. That kid sounds like a handful. I told him I was from D.C. and he asked if I had ever been to the White House. And I said I had been to the outside, but never the inside. And he goes, I'm sure you'll make it someday. Like, like as if it was some <laughs> life goal of mine. Like it's something people in D.C. try and do every yeah, day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That kid sounds like a hoot, honestly. Oh, yeah. I had a great time on that bus. All right. Okay. I feel like we should probably start the show because we could go into these conversations for hours. This movie has a lot to say. So welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark and I'm gay. And I'm Will and I'm a ginger. This, of course, is an investigative podcast dedicated to the least important question facing the world today. Does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation. We'll dig in and see what's there. And this week, we are rejoined by our chief medical expert, my sister, Mora. Hello, everyone. To talk about the 2012 Best Picture nominee, Silver Linings Playbook, written and directed by David O. Russell. Thrilled to be here for a movie that I actually enjoy. I, wait, 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 wait. We're starting <laughs> off on that tone? <laughs> I was going to say. The herald of hostility just... has arrived on this oh, podcast. Oh, my God. We need to set some ground rules about politeness, <laughs> kindness, listening with open ears. So this actually is a weird one because normally, or at least sometimes when you come on the show, it is because you have thrust some movie upon us. No, I did that once. I'm just saying. This is for, not a common thing. For you to complain that you don't get to come on for movies you like. The last time you were on this show was for Science Sealed Delivered, The Road Less Traveled, which as far as I'm concerned, you chose. No one said I liked it. <laughs> so we can keep it on the list of bad movies I have had to watch for this podcast. You did get to be on the episode for one of the best movies we've watched for the podcast. You talking about The Fly? Broadcast no. News. Broadcast News, I have no 
ill feelings towards. I loved The Big Sick. I liked Gaslight. There have been some good ones, but there have also been some really bad ones. Some really scarring ones, clearly. Maura didn't like (laughs) Stepbrothers. Yeah. (laughs) I forgot we made you watch Stepbrothers. (laughs) It was important to have a medical perspective. (laughs) What a good choice. There is nothing medical about that movie. It would be one thing if you just asked me to watch bad movies, but the fact that there's this false pretense that there is anything medical related to them, I don't need to only cover movies that have a medical plot line or whatever. In the fly, he gets a very serious disease. <sighs> we definitely needed a medical perspective on the fly. Uh-huh. Yeah. That was a medical movie. That was gross. <laughs> Anyway, this one we're actually doing because much like Signed, Sealed, Delivered, The Road Less Traveled, you actually gave me this DVD and said you should do it on the podcast. I did. It's a good movie. So, yeah. So, I had only seen this once before. Mark, I think you had never seen this? No, I did not, which is kind of funny because my parents both loved this movie. So, Maura, why don't you tell us why you like this movie so much, why you thought we should do it on the podcast, or give us some background there. Um, I Honestly, I haven't watched it in years, so it was... Interesting watching it again, but I just remember really liking it back when I first watched it. I remember... Did you see it in theaters? No, I did not. But it was a movie that I have, like, rewatched several times. I think uh, at the time that I watched it, I really latched on to some of Pat's views on, like, positive thinking, you know? (laughs) So... I think that is part of the reason I liked it. I also just, it, it came out, you know, when Jennifer Lawrence was like pretty big. and It's the same year as The Hunger Games. Yeah, which I was really into. So I just was like a Jennifer Lawrence fan, you know, obviously a Bradley Cooper fan too. I just thought it was like a fun. I like how movie. she came out with this movie, which she is supposed to be old enough to have become a widow and the movie where she is a 16 year old in the same year. I mean, yeah, she's 21 in this movie. When she wins the Oscar for it, she's the second youngest winner ever of Best Actress. That was a point of discussion. Like, there's a lot of discussion in the casting about, like, is Jennifer Lawrence too young for this role? And David O. Russell, I, like, read a bunch of interviews from 2012. And his thing always was like, no, she's got a timeless face. She could be 20 or she could be 40. Well, I she could be 40. I think she's 40. also supposed to be, like, pretty young in the movie. Like, yes. he flat out asks her at one point, how old are you? Because I think, like... To him, she seems, like, very young. If you had told me she was, like, 26 when they filmed this, I would believe you. And, of course, this begins the trend of Jennifer Lawrence in David O. Russell movies playing much too young, because three years after this, she's the lead in Joy when she's, like, 28 playing a 50-year-old. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely starts to push it a little far. Yeah, definitely. So for Jennifer Lawrence, like I said, this is the same year as The Hunger Games. Mark, it's a year after Like Crazy, if you remember we talked about that. Sure. And it's only two years after her first Oscar nomination for Winter's Bone. Like, she is really just emerging on the scene. And it's, like, funny to think back and to watch this movie and remember how huge she was at the time. Yeah, because I was watching it and I was like, oh, wow, I haven't seen anything with her in, in ages. But I think she had a baby recently. Maybe. She also, like, took a big step back after, like, the iCloud hacking. Like she, Oh, sure. Um, she made Red Sparrow and then that was kind of it for a while until this past year she was in Don't Look Up. But, like... The way that she was dominant at the box office with the Hunger Games movies, which I feel like have totally slipped out of our cultural memory, but were huge at the time. Yeah. And then also there was kind of her Oscar dominance with the nominations for Winter's Bone, Silver Linings Playbook, American Hustle. She wins for Silver Linings, and there was that like famous, like, she fell going up the stairs and everyone loved it. I want to say... I feel like my view of the movie is definitely colored at first when I turned it on by the like backlash against the Jennifer Lawrence 
thing because as soon as it starts, I was just like, I said to Nick, who's watching it with me and who'd seen it before, I was just like, is this going to be a movie where he's like quirky girled out of mental illness? Because that's the image of Jennifer Lawrence I had in my head as I assumed this would be a manic pixie dream girl movie. But Nick just laughs and goes, no, no, no. (laughs) No, this is a weird movie. It's a weird movie. Yeah. It's bizarre to go back and watch this and be like, this was the feel-good movie of that Oscar season. Watching it now, I feel like I was not as aware of, like, all of his manic episodes when I watched it previously. Yeah, he's a, he's an intense and a kind of scary character. Yeah, he's a little bit all over the place. Well, I mean, he is manic. <laughs> like, yeah. he is not taking his medicine. Right, yes. I have to say, this movie actually makes a very good case for taking, taking your, your medicine. Meds. Yeah. Yes, it is not one of those movies where it's like, what you actually need is just, like, to find a nice girl. No, the movie is clearly, like, these people should be on the medicines that they are prescribed. And I think some of that is probably influenced by David O. Russell, who directed it, and he adapted it from the novel by Matthew Quick. Maura, have you read the book? No, I think Fiona has, but I have not. Okay. Uh, David O. Russell's son is bipolar and has OCD. And, like, at least at the time, 10 years ago, was, like, in a permanent institution to help him handle all of that. And so for David O. Russell, he talked a lot during that Oscar season about, like, trying to bring some of his experiences to the script and the directing of it. I know with Robert De Niro, they shot a lot of his scenes in, like, wildly different emotional states so that they could pick different versions of them based on, like, the pacing of the movie and the tone they were going for, but also kind of reflecting that sense of things. And De Niro actually, too, talked about having people in his family who struggled with elements of mania. This movie... Speaking of Robert De Niro was interesting because there's the joke that now all he does is sit in movies. And I was watching this and I was like, he's doing a lot of sitting, but he's also doing a lot of acting at yeah, the same time. Yes. Yeah, I got no beef with like De Niro's best supporting actor nomination for this one. Like, this is not, it's not Joy. Like, Joy is the one where he's like sitting down in a chair for the movie. No, he gives a really good performance in this movie. He I does. think the sitting is a part of it. I think he is wearing this same Eagles sweater that our grandpa had. I was going to say, I thought it looked very familiar. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, we should know, you know, we've mentioned Lawrence, we've mentioned De Niro. This movie was a huge hit in terms of Oscar nominations and also in terms of money, we should talk about too. But in 2012, it's nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, all four acting categories. It's the first movie since Reds in 1981 to get nominations for actor, actress, supporting actor, supporting actress. And it's... Bradley Cooper, Jennifer Lawrence, Robert De Niro, and then... Jackie Weaver. Jackie Weaver. Okay. That's what I figured. And they also get nominations for editing and adapted screenplay. The only win, though, is for Jennifer Lawrence. But they do pretty well at other awards bodies. Like, they win the Indie Spirit for film, for director, best actress, and best screenplay. And Bradley Cooper gets a nomination there. National Board of Review gave them wins for actor and for screenplay. Jennifer Lawrence won the SAG Award. Like, this thing was a juggernaut. And on top of that... It made over $100 million. Yeah, it made over 200 worldwide. It's just kind of incredible to, to think about this movie. Because again, like, you know, Maura, I think what you had in your head of the movie as like kind of the like positive thinking movie, like romance, comedy, drama kind of thing. But like you watch it today and you're like, this movie is kind of alienating. It's, it's dark. Yeah, it's just it really like is. in a permanent manic state destroying his life for most of the movie yeah i mean neither of them has any filter at all so all the conversations are like very kind of awkward to be around for right you feel the secondhand embarrassment of everyone in their lives yeah it's not a movie where it's like 
they're just telling it like it is, and you're and they're like kind of awkward to be around because they don't have like the filter that other people have. Like they're they're well beyond that. Yeah, yeah. yeah this movie is not romanticizing much, which I appreciated about it. Yeah, that's you know I came away. I went into it kind of warily. I liked it fine the first time I saw it, but I was like, I don't know how this thing's going to age. And I came away being like, it doesn't not work. It's just much stranger than I expected. Yeah, it's it was very different than I remembered it being. I really did enjoy it, though. And, it, like, it does have a feel-good ending. Like, mm-hmm. it ends happily ever after. Yeah. But I think it earns it. I mean, we'll get into that probably with the believability of it, but... I don't think the movie is so dark that it can't be redeemed by the end. No, I agree with that. The book is decently darker in some ways that are kind of interesting. Or like in the book, which is mostly narrated from Pat's perspective, it starts with him coming out of the Baltimore facility thinking like, okay, it's been a couple months. Now I'm back to my life. I'm going to get back with my life. And what he doesn't, doesn't realize is it has been years. Oh, wow. That he was in there. And like, in the book, like, his wife has fully moved on. She has a new family. Like, she's kids and, like, a new husband and a house and all that. There's a much longer fake correspondence where, like, he's writing letters and Tiffany is writing them back as his wife. Which, frankly, like, is a much more intense situation than this one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if it goes on longer. That does sound very interesting, but I also see why, for a movie, you would change that. hmm Yeah. It's gonna be harder to make that one into a feel-good movie. Yeah. yeah. It's also going to be harder to make that into a two-hour movie. Yes. That's true. And you got Harvey Scissorhands producing it, so you can't get much longer than that. Yeah, because, I mean, I like that Nikki isn't a character in the movie, too. Oh, yeah. Does she have any lines? No, I don't think she ever speaks. You just see her. I think she says, like, you look good. Oh, yes. Something, or you lost weight or something something like like that. that. But she's not a person. I did think she actually manages to give a good performance with so little, though. Yeah, she does. I mean, her her job is to sort of be a little aloof, to be human but removed, and I think she does a good job of it. Yeah. Most of the acting in this movie is very good. You know who I really liked in this? Who? Julia Stiles. Oh, oh my yeah. god, me too. <laughs> I think she's great in it. I think so, too. And I mean, Jackie Weaver, of course. Australian legend, apparently. Have you seen the show Secret City? I've never heard of it. Mm -mm. It's an Australian spy drama starring the lead from Fringe. And Jackie Weaver plays an Australian senator. And she is amazing in it. You should watch it. It's very good. Huh. That's interesting. Okay. The lead plays like a, it's not really spy, but because she's an investigative journalist Mm -hmm. who like refuses to let the case go. And it's all about the secret city, of course, is Canberra, because all of the intense international relations center on Canberra as we all Australia. Know. That was probably the funniest part to me, is thinking that people cared about Australia as much as the movie pretends they do, or TV show. But that's mostly what I know her from. And I think she, seeing these two performances now, she is great. Yeah, I mean, she's good in the movie. Um, talking about casting, this movie had been in development for a while, actually since before the book came out. The book came out in 2008. It was acquired by the Weinstein Company before it was released. One of the producers there read an advanced copy and was like, we should buy this book. And it took a while to get going in part because its producers kept dying. Oh. It was originally going to be produced by Sidney Pollack, and then he died. And then it was going to be produced by Anthony Minghella, who had a relationship with Miramax, like he directed Cold Mountain and stuff. And then Anthony Minghella died. And so around that point, then they approached David O. Russell, 
off of I Heart Huckabees, and they were like, what do you think of this? And he jumped on it in part because of his son- experience with his son. And his plan at the time was to make it with Vince Vaughn and Zoe Deschanel. Hmm. That would be a really different movie. Yeah, like, I could see Vince Vaughn in that character, but it makes it a different character. Like, if you think about, like, like serious Vince Vaughn, not comedy Vince Vaughn. It's interesting because it would be very different, but also those actors kind of fall into similar categories at this time. Right. Because when does The Hangover come out? The Hangover's 2009. Okay, so this exists in a post-Hangover world. We've got post-Wedding Crashers world for these two actors. And then you have Zoe Deschanel, who, when given serious work, is good. She's not, you know, Jennifer Lawrence level, but they're both known as, like, quirky who can do serious performances. But at the same time, it would be very different. And also, at the time that they're, like, getting Zoe Deschanel on, like, people barely know who Jennifer Lawrence is. Yeah. But I agree that it would just be completely different. Yeah. So that version got set aside because David O. Russell got going on The Fighter instead. So that's 2010. He makes that. Comes back to Silver Linings Playbook. At that point, he wanted to bring Mark Wahlberg, who's the lead of The Fighter, to be the Bradley Cooper character. Which I do think also works, but again, that's a little bit of a different tone. Yeah. I mean, at this point, I'm kind of just like anti-Mark Wahlberg in general. Uh, For me, it's like... I don't think Mark Wahlberg gets to do two Philadelphia Eagles movies. (laughs) Like, that's a little too specific. The schedule for that didn't work out. They also, like, they cast Anne Hathaway as Tiffany, which I think is fascinating. And unsurprising, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. She dropped out because she and David O. Russell didn't get along, and the schedule was rocky because it bumped up against The Dark Knight Rises. And, of course, Anne Hathaway also wins an Oscar this year. She wins Supporting Actress for Les Mis. What a confusing world Hollywood is. <laughs> well, I've, the weirdest Oscar thing this year is that supporting actor, which goes to Crystal Vaults for Django Unchained, every nominee in the category had already won. Oh, weird. That's interesting. So it's this weird year. Let me pull up the list. So it's Crystal, like I said, Crystal Vaults wins for Django Unchained. Then it's Alan Arkin for Argo, De Niro for Silver Linings Playbook, Philip Seymour Hoffman for The Master, and Tommy Lee Jones for Lincoln. Like, every one of them already had an Oscar. Tommy Lee Jones, probably my winner out of that group. But, like, it leads to weird stuff where, like, Christoph Waltz wins for a performance that's very similar to the one he already had an Oscar for. Yeah, I don't I don't know if that would have been my choice that year. I, I think Tommy Lee Jones is amazing in Lincoln. I still need to see that. I do also want to watch The Master, because I've heard that was the one that a lot of critics were saying should have won. I mean, that movie rocks. And Philip Seymour Hoffman is amazing in it. I just am myself, and therefore... Yes, that doesn't surprise me. Tommy Lee Jones in Lincoln. The other thing that's interesting to think about with Silver Linings Playbook as an awards player is where it sits in the history of the People's Choice Award at Toronto. So the People's Choice Award is the big award at the Toronto Film Festival, which is where Silver Linings Playbook premiered in September of 2012. Mm -hmm. And this comes out right in the window where Toronto is becoming a major starting point in the Oscar season where it's really becoming one of the big precursor places. And so like, just to give you a sense of what the people's choice award has become, I want to just read through you the last like 15 years of winners of the people's choice awards. All right. Before that, you see a lot of, a lot of art films, like different kinds of stuff. And like, sometimes they line up with Oscar, like life is beautiful. American beauty, crouching tiger, all won the people's choice awards. But you'd also see other weird stuff where like strictly ballroom, one in 1992. Like, that wasn't going anywhere with Oscar. Yeah. But so, starting in 2008, Slumdog Millionaire wins. 2009, Precious based on the novel Push by Sapphire. 2010, The King's Speech. 
we're at two that go on to win Best Picture. Yeah. Dog and The King's Speech. 2011's an outlier. They picked a, a Lebanese movie, Where Do We Go Now? But then 2012, Silver Linings Playbook wins Best Picture nomination. 2013, 12 Years a Slave wins Best Picture. 2014, The Imitation Game, Best Picture nominee. 2015, Room, Best Picture nominee. 2016, La La Land, like runner-up for Best Picture. <laughs> <laughs> 2017, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, Best Picture nominee. 2018, Green Book, Best Picture winner. 2019, Jojo Rabbit, Best Picture nominee. 2020, Nomadland, Best Picture winner. 2021, Belfast, probably the runner-up? I mean, we'll find out. (laughs) Right, so we are recording pre-Oscars. I can't remember if this episode comes out before or after the Oscars. Who knows when this episode comes out anymore? (laughs) But this has become such a thing that at the point belfast won the people's choice award at toronto a bunch of people including me were kind of like i I guess that's it like that's our oscar winner that's so interesting the people at toronto they know yeah but part of it is like toronto is such a big festival there are so many movies there and so many people get to participate in the decision making that more than other festivals it's a good way to get a consensus of like oh what do a lot of people yeah i mean that makes sense so if you like have some weird like long tail oscar betting pools Pay attention to Toronto, and that'll at least get you something. I feel like the betting probably does not start then, but you can always look back at what won. Right, and it's kind of wild to look back, where, like, from 2008 forward, there's been one movie that was not at least a Best Picture nominee. Yeah, that's crazy. Wow. I mean, they're all good movies. Yeah, not a bad list. I mean, eh, not all. I just remembered Green Book. There are movies there that I like a lot more than some others. Yeah, I forgot Green Book was on that list. But it's not the worst list in the world. No. Are you watching Abbott Elementary, Will? Yeah, it rules. They make a Green Book joke in the most recent episode that was very funny. I saw a Green Book joke on one a couple of weeks ago that I enjoyed. Maybe it was a couple weeks ago. I can't remember. You might be behind, my friend. Yeah. Oh, it was the week before. I watched two yesterday. Oh, okay. I love Green Book jokes. (laughs) I love Abbott Elementary. Maura, are you watching Abbott Elementary? I am not. My grandma said she tried to watch it, but she was a teacher in Chicago And she said that it hit too close too close to to reality, including the principal. So she had to stop watching it. And the fact that Ava made her think about principles she dealt with made me terrified. No, see, the moments where it's just real, that's what I love about Abbott Elementary. There was a great piece in Vulture. I think it was Catherine Van Arendonk after the most recent episode, which is the episode uh, with the step team. And the headline was just, Please don't make Ava good. Like, just keep her terrible. No redemption arc. I agree. Ava is probably my favorite part of the show just by being terrible. And, like, it's so so many small things, especially in the performances. I love every time, like, the show uses the mockumentary format that so many shows have used since The Office. But Ava, more than anyone, constantly just looks to the camera like, did you catch that? Did you catch me being impressive? Did you catch me looking good? I love her creepiness towards Gregory too. Like in the episode where he's dancing and she pulls out a dollar. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, people should watch Abbott Elementary. It's airing weekly on ABC. It's on Hulu. It's like the best network sitcom in years. I agree. But we should probably talk about romance in Silver Linings Playbook. All right. So just to introduce the concept, every week we break down the romantic plotline into five points to guide the conversation as our guest Mora, will you please bring us to point numero uno? I will not. Excuse oh, me? Okay. This has been one of your most aggressive episodes. <laughs> We're going to have to have a point zero. You have been incredibly hostile this entire time. You came 
out at the gate yelling at us about the kinds of movies you get to cover. I can't start with point one because we have to start with point zero. We need the backstory. You're no Fiona. All right. The backstory of the situation is that Pat was married to Nikki. This is Pat played by Bradley Cooper. Nikki played by... Someone. Doesn't matter. Voiceless actor with no Wikipedia page. Yeah. So basically the backstory, they were married. Pat is bipolar, walked in on Nikki having an affair with one of their, Pat and Nikki work together at the local high school. He comes home one day, walks in on Nikki having an affair with one of the other teachers. Having like shower sex. It seems like they've had sex already because like their clothes are all over the place. Yeah. So presumably they like came in, like tore off their clothes to get at each other and then like post sex, got in the shower after setting up a boom box with the songs from <laughs> Nikki's wedding playing. Which is a weird move. It's very strange to think about the sequence of events that lead to like, the oh, scene. Like, oh, wait, actually, before we get in the shower, we have to put on my wedding video real quick. Very bizarre. But anyway, so Pat walks in on them. He gets very upset because he comes home, hears the wedding song playing, thinks like, you know. He thinks my wife's got to be in the shower. Yeah. Like, that's what we do every time we take a shower. We <laughs> play the song from our wedding. It calms us down, balances out the heat of the shower. But then he realizes there's another man there. So he has a full-on explosion. He's like, goes into a manic fit. And I, I think he maybe ends up beating up the other teacher. Heavily, yes. Yeah. He's beating him up. He wraps a cord from like a shower head around his neck. Like, it's bad. Yeah, so Nikki ends up getting a restraining order on him and Pat ends up at like a hospital on a court order. So that's his backstory. So he, at the start of the movie, has gotten out, his mom has gotten him out of the hospital and he's trying to get his life back on track. It seems she's gotten him out quite earlier than the court had agreed. On the condition that, like, he'll be living at home so his family will be keeping an eye on him. It seems like he's only been in for a couple of months. Yeah, eight months, I think they say. So basically, he's now out of the hospital and his whole goal is to, like, have his life more together so that he can win Nikki back. Yeah, he constantly frames it as, like, I am still married. We are still in love with each other. Even though he hasn't been in touch with his wife in the whole eight months that he's been away. He's not allowed to be. There's a restraining order. True. And he has some weird ways for how he's going to get Nikki back. She's a high school English teacher, and he's like, I'm going to read her entire syllabus, and that's how I'm going to get her back, you know? So just, like, interesting thinking there. He does frame it as, like, self-improvement. Like, I'm going to read deep things and think about them. I gotta say, there's way more books there than an 11th grade English teacher could govern a year. Yeah. You maybe get five. Yeah. Like, if you're if you're aggressive, you get five. So... That's kind of my point zero. And then going into point one, so like I said, Pat is out trying to like fix up his life a little bit. He runs into one of his old friends who invites Pat over for dinner. What meds are you on? Me? None. I used to be on lithium and Seroquel and Abilify, but I don't take them anymore. No. They make me foggy and they also make me bloated. Yeah, I was on Xanax and Effexor, but I agree it wasn't as sharp, so I stopped. You ever take Klonopin? Klonopin, yeah. Right? Jesus. Like, is it what? Yeah. What day is it? How about trazodone? Trazodone? Oh, it flattens you out. I mean, you are done. It takes the light right out of your eyes. God, I bet it does. I think it's so funny that they're named Ronnie and Veronica. I also thought that was funny. So Ronnie and Veronica have Pat over for dinner, and then he shows up and finds out that Veronica's sister, Tiffany, is also coming. Yeah, let's just let's just unpack this whole scene, because there's so much going on. For starters, Bradley Cooper shows up in a Deshaun Jackson jersey. An away jersey, which is even weirder. I like, didn't why, think about that. Why did his brother give him an away jersey? 
on top of that, I love everything that Roddy and Veronica do. Like, we get the tour of the house where Veronica, played by Julia Stiles, is, like, showing off that they have these weird wall iPod docks in every room. Which oh my is God. such a moment-in-time house improvement to have. The Apple product placement in this movie is pretty rough. But, like, the thing is, it's not just, like, look at my iMac, it's great. It's all, like, look at this weird thing that I've got going on. It's funny, because that thing is one year away from being obsolete. Yes, exactly. And even at the time, like, it still feels like the movie is framing it as, like, this is pretty weird that they did this. Yeah. I mean, Veronica is portrayed as being, like, so image conscious. And meanwhile, Ronnie, uh, who's played by John Ortiz, is going on and on to Pat. Who is, like, just out of, like, a forced psychiatric treatment. And Ronnie's going on about, like, now's a really good time to, like, buy up real estate because people can't afford to hold on to it. Like, he's clearly just, like, trying to talk himself into why it's okay to take advantage of people who are being kicked out of their homes. But he is also, like, not okay at all. Every time he and Pat talk, it starts off being very, light, like, oh, yeah, yeah, we're doing all these house renovations, yeah. Like, Veronica just had a baby, and then his voice will drop to a whisper, and he's like, I'm not okay, dude. I'm losing it. I'm suffocating. And I think one of the strengths of the movie is the way that it engages with how many people whether it reaches the level of mental illness or not, but are, like, struggling with aspects of their lives or struggling with how they feel they should be and how they feel like they need to present themselves and how they feel like they are. Ronnie is the one character where it's presented as comedy. Where, like, everybody else in, like, some of the struggles they face, like, everybody in Pat's family, obviously Tiffany. With Ronnie, you're just always kind of like, what is this dude's deal? They also show a lot of different ways with how people cope with the stresses in their lives. Like, Ronnie just doesn't deal with it at all, you know, whereas Pat, like, actually does, like, go to therapy and, like, try to better his life, whereas Tiffany has sex with a bunch of different people. Like, there's a whole range of how people try to deal with their emotions. I love that Ronnie is like, my therapy is going in the garage and listening to heavy metal and just punching the air. Smashing things. Um, speaking of going to therapy, what do we think of Dr. Patel? I think he really breaks some, like, professional relationship boundaries. I think it's one thing for them to happen to run into each other at the Eagles game, but then he, like, goes to Pat's house afterwards and shows up at the dance competition later on. The professional lines need to be a bit thicker. Like, you could say hi at the game, but you should not be drinking with your patients. Or, like, getting in fights together. I also think the fact that he plays Pat's wedding song in the lobby... That was too much. Wildly inappropriate. You cannot do... Like desensitization like methods are one thing but you can't just spring it on someone like that in a public place it's madness yeah he seems like a bad doctor nice guy he bad seems doctor. like a nice guy but he needs to fix some things in his professional life but anyway so at this dinner tiffany shows up and she hears ronnie and pat talking about ronnie's kind of telling pat about Tiffany and like who she is and her husband has died recently and so Tiffany walks in right as Pat's like oh who's this guy how did he die what's the deal and Pat tells Tiffany she looks very nice and he's like no I'm not flirting with you I just am trying to appreciate like your beauty just so I can use that when I get Nikki back I'm gonna like try to appreciate her beauty more often and like appreciate more things about her so it already just starts on a weird foot and then the two of them just start going on about when Tiffany finds out that Pat was just hospitalized. 
Pat and Tiffany just start going on about all the different psych meds that they have been on. And they just start listing them all off and talking about how they felt on all of them. And you can tell it's very uncomfortable for Veronica and Ronnie to just sit there while these two talk about all the different meds they've been on. Especially for Veronica, because you have the sense that Julia Stiles has been over and over again, like, trying to, like, force her sister to be normal and just, like... Wouldn't it be easy if we all just, like, had a nice civilized dinner together? Yeah, all she, and she was not, a nice dinner. She was not prepared for Bradley Cooper in an Eagles jersey chatting about drugs. That conversation is really funny, though. because It is very funny. I have had conversations like that before. The comparison of medicine and their different pros and cons is just something that happens. But so then, like, randomly, in the middle of this dinner, Tiffany just kind of stands up and says she has to go and basically says that Pat is going to walk her home. And Pat just looks up at her and he's like, are you talking to me? And she's like, yes. And he just goes, you have poor social skills. You have a problem. And that's what I'm saying. Like, the two of them just have no filter and just have these conversations that are very uncomfortable for anyone else to be a part of. Like, I cannot imagine just flat out looking at someone and saying you have poor social skills like that. We could practice it with each other. Well, also, I mean, remember earlier when he comes home and is just like, remember, you told me that? You said just now, don't tell me to say this, but... Remember? Yes, because Pat's dad has a bookkeeping business going on, and he comes home from the hospital and starts talking about it, and his dad is like, what are you talking about? And he's mad that Pat's mom told him, and he's like, yeah, yeah, you told me outside. You said, don't tell dad I'm telling you, but he has a, he lost his job. He has his bookkeeping business. But yeah, at dinner, Tiffany says to basically does convince him to walk her home. Even after uh, Ronnie and Veronica are like, maybe that's a bad idea. Yeah, so he does walk her home. She lives in like a renovated garage off of her parents' house. They get to her house and she basically tells Pat like, it's been a while since I've gone out with anybody, but we can have sex as long as you turn off the light. And he's very taken aback. She's like, I hate that you wore an Eagles jersey. I don't want to look at it. Yeah. He's very taken aback and turns her down. I do like the implication that he will keep his shirt on during sex. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's Deshaun Jackson. <laughs> this movie is very specifically set during the 2008 NFL season. And so, like, all of the games that they're referencing are specific games of the 08 NFL season, which we should note the Eagles did pretty well in. They went on to the NFC Championship, where they lost to the Cardinals, who then got beaten in the Super Bowl by the Pittsburgh Steelers. Are the Cardinals not a baseball team? The Car- I think they are. The Cardinals are both a baseball team and a football team in different cities. Oh. The St. Louis Cardinals play baseball. The Arizona Cardinals play football. I think this is the first I've ever heard of the Arizona Cardinals. <laughs> the references to football in this, there was one that was particularly delightful for me, which was one of the first games we hear about. The Eagles had been playing against Washington, and Robert De Niro is complaining about a touchdown that was scored thanks to a catch by Randall L. Maura, do you remember Antoine Randall L's time on the Washington football team? I remember the name, but I don't really remember anything about him. Mark, this was like a a free agent who got hired largely by Washington's owner. Like he wasn't really chosen by the coach for a lot of money, like got a really good contract. And everyone in DC was kind of like, I don't know that this player is really going to be worth it. It was worth it to me. Not that he helped win a lot of games, but he led to a lot of joy. For those of us who paid attention to DC sports, because that first season, which I think was 2007 or 2008, that he was on the team, the coach insisted on just like everybody like doing some basic physical stuff before proper training started, like doing some running, doing some lifting, stuff like that, just to like prove that like everybody was where they needed to be. Like, we don't want to put you into something more intense until you can do this. And Randall L, this like 
free agent who just got brought in for a ton of money, refused to do any of the running. Oh, I do not remember this. <laughs> he was like, no, that's ridiculous. I'm not going to do it. And it, this went on for like two weeks where he was refusing to do it. It was covered every day in the Washington Post and the local news. It got to be a point where like all the local sports journalists went out to like the Washington training facility and they all did it just to be like, is this hard? And basically all of them successfully did it. That's hilarious. It was awesome. Oh my God. So point two, Pat starts talking to his therapist about Tiffany and his therapist basically says, which I also am not sure I agree with the therapist about this approach, but he tells Pat, if you help Tiffany out just in life, I guess, maybe Nikki will see it as progress on your part and let, that you've like gotten your life together. Yeah, this is bad. Yeah, I was like, can't really see a therapist giving this that advice. That therapist should only focus on getting him to stop thinking about Nikki. Right, and instead he's like, getting him to think more about what he can do to get her back. Whereas Pat's parents are being very realistic. Like she might've moved on. She might've moved away. Like she might've sold the house. She probably wants nothing to do with you since she has a restraining order against you. And this therapist is just like buying into Ooh, Pat's Maybe you can impress her. Feelings. Yeah. Yeah. How did I do? I think I did pretty well. Yeah. She said you were cool, basically. Basically? Was I some percentage not cool? No, she said you were cool, but you know. No, I don't know. Sort of how you are. It's fine, relax. What do you mean, how am I? What does that mean? Sort of like me. Sort of like you? I hope to God she didn't tell Nikki that. Why? Because it, it's just not right lumping you and I together. It's, I mean, it's just wrong and Nikki wouldn't like that. Especially after all the shit you just told me. You think that I'm crazier than you. <laughs> because... Well, we're different, I mean. Oh my god. So anyway, so Pat takes this advice and he's like, wow, yeah, okay, I gotta like help Tiffany out. So Pat keeps going on runs past Tiffany's house and she keeps like springing out of nowhere and joining him on these runs. And so on one of them, he invites her to dinner, which is where they go to the diner, which we were talking about before, where he orders Raisin Bran. Right. They're both looking at the menu. And as soon as the waitress comes up, he's like, yeah, I'll have a bowl of Raisin Bran. And then she is clearly taken aback and orders tea because she's like, I guess we're not having a real meal here. It is nice. He does offer her some of the Raisin Bran. The waitress not reacting to the Raisin Bran was also so funny. I, I mean, you know what? She works at a diner. She's clearly seen it all before. And so Pat tries to make it very clear, like, this is not a date, because in his mind, it's just him helping her out. Because he's married. Right. And that's another point, is that when Tiffany asks Pat, like, about having sex together, he's like, no, 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 I'm a married man. And she's like, yeah, I'm married too. And he gives her a really hard time. He's like, oh, that's confusing, though. Your husband's dead. Like, my wife and I are still very much in love, even though they're not in contact with each other. Right. He's deluded. Yeah. So... Does that bring us to point three? Yes, that brings us to point three. Tiffany tells Pat if he writes a letter to Nikki, she can get it to Nikki because sometimes she sees her because Nikki and uh, Veronica are friends. So she's like, sometimes I see Nikki. If you write a letter, I can get it to her. Like, yeah, I'd be breaking the law, but, you know, why not? And then eventually she realizes there needs to be something in it for her. So they make this agreement that in exchange for giving this letter to Nikki, Pat will help Tiffany out with this 
ballroom dance competition that she wants to be a part of, and but she just needs a partner for. Can we do something else besides the dance deal? Are you fucking kidding me? I'm good with a hammer. You want me to fix something? A deal is a deal. I know. Okay. I was just suggesting that maybe there's a better scenario. Why don't you walk towards me like I'm Nikki? And the only way to convey how much you've missed me is by your walk, by your slow walk. You can't talk. I'm only not walk. I'm not Do it. No. That's stupid. No walk, no letter. And... She's pretty clear from the beginning that she's not good. Like, she's like, you know, it, this is a fun thing that I enjoy, but... She's like, I'm doing this to help me get through this tough time. I'm not good, but I need a partner if I'm able to compete. Honestly, my guess is the only way she's in it, because this is like a thing that professionals are in, mm-hmm. but it's sponsored by the police union. So I'm assuming she only gets into it because they're like, yeah, that's, you know, that's Tiffany. That's like Bobby's widow. Like, I guess let her Tommy's be in this. Widow. I don't remember. Tiffany and Tommy. This town only has one cop anyway. Yeah, it's called the, it's called an open dance competition. Okay. So I think technically it's open. But like, there should be different, like, tiers of competition. Yeah. They should not be up against the pros. But anyway, you can see that Pat and Tiffany spending time together is good tiffany can really kind of help pat like deal with his outbreak sometimes like he has said that sometimes he hears his wedding song playing even when it's not really there and that happens outside the diner and she kind of like pulls him out of it like there's no song there's no song it's fine like you know take some deep breaths that one cop is there because he's he's on his beat you know how cops walk beats in 2012 and i mean they get into huge fights a lot yeah the movie also, and I mean, uh, one of its Oscar nominations is for editing. I think it's really impressively edited in a way that mirrors Pat's mental state, where, like, the first half of the movie is, like, really aggressively edited. It makes these jarring cuts. It, like, skips past stuff and kind of disorients you, where you have to figure out what's going on again. And as he gets more stable, he never, you know, gets all the way there, because this movie is not dumb enough to think that... Everything's fixed at the end. R- right. But it does settle down a little bit more and have longer scenes and for more fluid motions as it goes through. I think that's a really great example of technical filmmaking mirroring the emotional story being told. Mm-hmm. But yeah, and so you can tell that over time, Pat is kind of thinking more about Tiffany in like a romantic sense, even though he continues to claim that everything he's doing is for Nikki. And they actually use Pat's wedding song as one of the songs for their dance, which I think is like an interesting way of trying to get him to be less triggered by it. Good good selection of music in this movie. Yeah, yeah I right. did enjoy the music. When they start practicing dance on like Girl from the North Country hit, I was like, give it to me. I love this. So on to point four, Pat's dad, you know, he has this betting going on. He's a bookkeeper. And so he has lost a lot of money on this one bet. Because Pat is his good luck charm. And so he sends Pat to the Eagles game to be there in person as a good luck charm. And his parents don't like Tiffany. They don't like that he's spending time with Tiffany. And so he's skipping out on Tiffany to go because he wants to build his relationship with his father. But that's where he sees his therapist and they like drink together. And then some people say some racist things and they get into a fight. And Pat only joins because his brother is getting like held and punched. But then... Pat and his brother get arrested. It seems like the cops are only targeting them and the... The Solitano family. Yeah, <laughs> that's because there's one cop in town and his beat is Pat Solitano. <laughs> True. But then according to Pat's dad, this is why they lose the game and he's losing money. But then Tiffany says, no, every time he's with me, they've won the game. 
Right. And so then Pat's dad starts to think, oh, okay, like maybe you spending time with Tiffany isn't really such a bad thing after all. So he has lost money on that Eagles game, but he and his friend are trying to now turn it around into a double or nothing, where the Eagles then have to win their next game. But in addition, since he now sees how important this dance competition is, they also include that in the bet where the Eagles have to win and Pat and Tiffany have to score at least a five in this dance competition. Does anybody here happen to know what the official motto of the state of New York is on the official seal of the state of New York? Mm-mm. Huh? Anybody? Do you? Do you know? No. No. Excelsior. Oh. Look it up. Oh, really? What? Yeah. Oh. Excelsior. Oh, Pat. Ooh. Not that I give a fuck about football or about your superstitions, but if it's me reading the signs, I don't send the Eagles guy whose personal motto is Excelsior to a fucking Giants game, especially when he's already in a legal situation. At the same time that this happens, Tiffany has delivered Pat's letter to Nikki and she says that she has gotten a response. And so Pat is reading the letter and it's basically Nikki saying like, it seems like you've made some great progress, but I still like need to see more from you. Which is a weird letter. It is a weird letter. Yeah. It makes sense. The big reveal later is that, like, Tiffany wrote the letter. Yes, which Pat kind of figures out in that moment because there's a line in the letter that Tiffany, like, uses that same line later on. And so he puts two and two together and realizes, like, oh, this letter was from yeah. Tiffany all along, not actually from Nikki. And so she clearly is, like, simultaneously trying to help him but also trying to corner him into, like, Uh, She needs to see more, like, keep helping me with the dance. Right, exactly. Everything that Tiffany is doing, it's very much for her own, like, profit. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she's very self-centered. Yes. Which, I mean, Pat is, too, because the only reason he's helping her is because he thinks he's going to help himself. So, they both are. she's entirely fixated on the dance competition. Right, and I think, like, that's where, Mark, to get back to what you were worried about before this movie, it avoids the manic pixie dream girl thing because... Like, the original Manic Pixie Dream Girl is Kirsten Dunst in Elizabethtown. And that's a performance where she is solely focused on, like, creating magical moments for um, Orlando Bloom. And in Silver Linings Playbook, Tiffany barely cares about Pat, except to the extent that she can benefit from him being around. Right. It's two very selfish people who find each other. So, anyway, they are worried that Pat is going to blow off the dance competition. And there's this conversation between Tiffany and Pat's parents where they're all kind of like, yeah, no, this has been good for him. We need to make sure that he actually goes. So let's tell him that Nikki is going to be at the dance competition. This is a horrible idea. Yes. But you also, I'm also confused because at this point you also find out that Pat's mom told Tiffany where Pat runs so that she would be able to, like, join him on his running routes, which doesn't make sense to me because earlier on in the movie, the family is really against the two of them spending time together. So I don't understand why the mom would have disclosed his running schedule. But anyway, so Pat's all excited. Nikki's going to be at the dance competition. He's going to get to see her, maybe get to talk to her. And it starts to really upset Tiffany because... She, you know, with these letters, it seems, was really hoping that maybe something would happen more with her and Pat, and he is still just truly focused on his getting his marriage with Nikki back together. So um, then they go to the dance competition. We're kind of getting into point five here, but they go to the dance competition. They are not well matched for the other competitors. <laughs> yeah, they're showing us, I mean, from the drop, it's like, look at how everyone's dressed, and they have, like, actual, like, dance competition outfits. Everyone yeah. is doing intense, like, choreographed dancing. This is where, like, 
I am not an expert in any kind of competition, but like I know that, for example, with like foot races, even when like lots of people are able to join, like they stagger people based on like what category are you in? Like, are you going to be able to do this race in two hours? You're in this group. Is it going to take you three hours? You're in this group. Yeah. And this, they're just like total free for all. They, well, and you they see- should not have competed against the people they compete against. No. And because you see that one of the couple dance couples, their routine, and it's amazing and like very good. And you see that they only score like a seven out of 10. So everyone starts to get very nervous that there is no way that Pat and Tiffany will be able to score a five. And there's a lot of money hinging on this. But Tiffany at this point sees that Nikki is there and she runs away to the bar. Right. Because Nikki wasn't actually supposed to come. They were just supposed to pretend that she was coming to get Pat there. But then Nikki actually shows up. So Tiffany spirals and gets really drunk. Theoretically, although she's not no, really. No, I don't think she actually drunk. gets. She doesn't seem to actually be that drunk. Yeah, she seems drunk-ish when she's at the bar, but not at all when she's dancing. Right. Yeah, I do love. I mean, one of the things they focus on a lot during the dance training montages is this like last final move, this jump, and you see them like trying and failing to do it a lot, and they're like, "We have to get this down," and. In the competition, that's, like, the one thing that just flat out doesn't work. It goes so badly. They're doing a dance that is, like, fine, clearly not as complex as what the other people are doing, but you get it where you're like, all right, these people are not professionals, and, like, this dance largely works. It was choreographed by Mandy Moore, not the actor Mandy Moore, the choreographer from So You Think You Can Dance. But then it ends with this jump, which is just horribly executed. so painful to watch. She just like lands on his face. It's so funny. She's like clutching his head (laughs) and they do like the most awkward spin with it and then put her down. And part of what's great is they're like, we did it. We nailed the move. (laughs) Well, also it's great then because at the end, then the judges are giving their scores and they end up getting exactly a 5.0. Yeah, which it's weird that like the final score they need because, you know, you want the suspense. But it means that, like, the judge who's been the mean judge is the one who gives them I, the highest I score. I kind of like that because it's like her heart was warmed by these dumb non-professionals who yeah. tried their best. <laughs> but she can give them a little boost because, like, she knows they're not going to go anywhere with this. Or possibly she was bought out by Robert De Niro. <laughs> it is Philadelphia. But it's funny because while they're standing there waiting for their scores, as each score shows up, one of the other dancers is like, wow, I'm so sorry, you guys. That's a lot of fours. That's really tough. And then their average score ends up being a five. And the whole clan of the Solitanos and all the rest of their like friends who are there start cheering wildly because the Eagles have also won the game. So this means that Pat's dad won the bet. And everybody else, the like MC of the competition and all the other dancers are looking around so confused because they're like, why are these people so excited about a five? Yeah, it's funny. Anyway, then afterwards, everyone's very excited. And then Pat's like, oh, I need to go over and talk to Nikki. Tiffany sees him over there talking to her, and she is like, you know what, I'm done with this, and she runs away. Thank God the town cop wasn't there. (laughs) The only cop. And so Pat goes out after her and hands her a letter, and she thinks it's another letter that he wants her to give to Nikki, and she's like, I'm done with this. Just give her your letters yourself. Like, I'm not doing this anymore. Especially because, like... Obviously, like, she was falling in love with Pat, and she's like, I don't want to encourage you to be in love with someone else that you're maybe getting back together with. Yeah. And also, he's now, she saw him have a face-to-face conversation with right. Nikki, so she's like, I don't need to be your middleman yeah. anymore. That also didn't go poorly. Right. But so Pat's like, no, 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 just take this letter, please read it, and it's addressed to Tiffany, and it's Pat professing his love to her, and he's like, I knew you were the one who wrote the letters, I wrote this letter a week ago, like, I'm in love with you. 
I wrote that a week ago. You wrote that a week ago? Yes, I did. You let me lie to you for a week? I was trying to be romantic. You love me. Yeah, I do. But of course, to do this too, he has to chase her running, and every time before running, she had been running after him. Aww. Wow. And then they kiss. And they end up together. Yeah, they kiss there, and then later on, they, they kiss in a chair at his parents' house. Yep, and that's that. All right, so do we find the romance between Tiffany and Pat believable? I think I do. I could see how they both, like, can understand a little bit of where each other is coming from and could, like, somewhat help each other deal with it, but also just, like, empathize with the other situation in a way that would be helpful compared to being with someone who has no reference for what you're experiencing. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Like, clearly... Obviously, like, Pat was not getting any kind of treatment or medication when he was married to Nikki, but also just, like, his circumstance was one that she could not relate to. And it's not a failing of hers that she couldn't, but she did not have that experience. Right. I think, again, and this is something we say often, like, a reason this movie is a little bit stronger is because it ends with the start of their relationship and doesn't ask us to believe more than they're starting a relationship. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that if both of them become properly treated they have the potential to, you know, actually really stabilize and get to know each other. So, Mora, where would you rate the believability of this movie where zero means you believe none of it and ten means you believe all of it? Um, I don't know. I'm thinking maybe, like, somewhere around an eight-ish. I was also feeling eight. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds good. I was thinking seven or I could see it working eight. out. I could see, like, them, like, continuing to have more blow-ups and maybe at a certain point they kind of decide they're done with it, you know, but I could also see it working out. Yeah, I would agree with that, too. I mean, I think this is a good time to ask if you do think they'll stay together long term, then. Switch up the order a little bit. Yeah, I think I do see them together. Like I said, unless, like, they just are are butting heads too much and can't deal with it, I do think I could see them staying together. The relationship definitely has legs. This is not going to be a short thing. Yes. I don't know if it's, like, a forever ever, but they definitely will be together long term. Yeah. Now, if you did have to pick one person in the movie to date, who would you choose? I have really struggled with this question. It's a rough question. Because it's tough. I mean, a movie about how every person is struggling. And, like, in pretty big ways, I feel like. You know, I definitely and could even the not people... date either of the leads. I could not date Pat's dad, who is, like, way too superstitious about the Eagles. I mean, Also prone to violence. The movie, yeah. I, the movie is implying that he has undiagnosed OCD. Oh, definitely. I think they come right out and say it at some point. Yeah. Yeah. And like even people who in a normal movie would be like, oh, fine, like Dr. Patel. We're like, wait a minute. No, you're bad. Right, exactly. And like Ronnie, I'm like, you are not addressing your issues. So no, that's not going to be good either. Veronica. She's too meddlesome. She's a lot. Even if you were the kind of person who wanted to date a cop, this guy would have no time because he's the only cop in town. He's busy. I really struggled with this question, but I think my answer is probably going to be the person competing in the dance competition who tries to console them when they get a lot of scores <laughs> because I think she has a lot of great dance skills and maybe she could teach me some of them. I think it would be fun to learn to dance. She's beautiful. Yes, yeah, she is. And, you know, she's nice. I think maybe the diner waitress because the fact that she doesn't react at all when he orders Raisin Bran shows that she's willing to just let people be themselves. Okay, yeah. You know, I normally stick to my rule that I don't date teachers, but I'm going to go with the teacher at the high school that Pat accosts when he first gets out. Why? Because 
she seems like a nice, caring person, but who is also working very hard to set boundaries. She is very overwhelmed by his presence. She's like, ah, get away from me! This, this would be alarming if someone who assaulted one of your coworkers suddenly showed up at your workplace. I guess so. I like, she think... makes a comment like, you can't come back here. You're not allowed to be here. It's true. But she also starts yelling when he is not at all seeming threatening. He's very intense. I think she doesn't handle that situation that well. But I agree I that it would reasonable. be stressful knowing his history. Yeah. 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 I mean, I do think the way she handles it wouldn't exactly uh, help a situation with someone in his mental condition. No, definitely not. But it is understandable. Now, Mora. Our last question. Do you think the film Silver Linings Playbook should be adapted into a stage musical? No, I don't see that at all. I, I don't think we need, like, some weird songs being thrown into this trying to add, like, a happy-go-lucky or whatever vibe, you know, that's really not fitting with the... I think... I Yeah, I'm trying to think if there could be songs that could like add to the manic episodes at all and i think that might just end up being bizarre mental illness musical is really shaky yeah ground. yeah i mean we have next to normal and i don't know if people really need to dive in yeah yeah i do think a musical about ronnie could be fun <laughs> oh yeah for sure and julia styles should be in it yes exactly but yeah no not i don't think there needs to be a silver linings playbook musical all right, well, I think that does it for Silver Linings Playbook. Maura, I'm glad we finally got around to it. Yes, me too. Next week, we will be watching Richard Linklater's er, er, early film? Early, not early. his first. Yeah, not his first, but an early Richard Linklater film before Sunrise. This is not a movie I had ever seen before, but I think it's really great. Me too. Until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe, especially on Apple Podcasts, to help other people find the show. All right, last question, Mora. What is the best piece of dating advice we got from Silver Linings Playbook? This is also a really hard one. <laughs> I do not really condone most of the actions in this movie. <laughs> the nice thing is the movie doesn't want you to. Well, that's true. Maybe write fake love letters to the person you're interested in. I was thinking about this on the way here, and I was also thinking about I mean, it because- It's funny, because I just saw Cyrano I last was going to say, Cyrano is out right, like coming out right now, and it's a similar premise in that movie, so I think that's what I'm going to go with. It also doesn't work out in that movie. Yeah, but it does work out in this movie, so you got a 50-50 shot. I'm going to say that Pat's advice that you should put effort into keeping your relationship strong is good advice because Ronnie does eventually learn to listen to Veronica and work through their issues and they stay together. I'm just going to say, be clear about your intentions. If you want something to be a date, say so. If you very specifically don't, you should also say that. Great advice. <laughs> if you don't, order Raisin Bran. <laughs> All right, well, there you go. Until next time, I'm a ginger. And I'm gay. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye. Bye. If you're traveling in the north, when the winds hit heavy on the borderline, please say hello to one who lives there, for she was once a true.